0: I think that what we need to start doing is not asking, is it too late to do anything
1: about climate, but asking, how can I help? It's not done yet. And while we're still here, we're still working with determination and courage. There is hope that we can come through and do this.
2: I want to say that my driving force has still been that love for nature, that love for the
3: people. When there is oppression, when there is injustice, there will always be resistance. The question is, will you join me?
4: Hello and welcome to An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World. I'm O Martinga.
5: And I am Gail Galli. This is the podcast for anyone who cares about building a better world and doesn't quite know where to start.
4: In this series, we use the United Nations Plan for a Better World, a.k.a. the Global Goals, to help us identify who's already chipping away at the big problems and to see how average Joes like me, and me, can join in to become a positive force. Each week, we look at one of the 17 and meet the people finding solutions to achieve the Global Goals. In this episode, how do we combat climate change? the biggest challenge of our lifetime. What do activists actually do and how do you become one?
5: And finally, we talked to one of the architects of the Paris Agreement to find out if there really is still a place for optimism.
4: Okay, Gail. Climate change. This is the scary one. I won't lie. This is the one that keeps me up at night. Literally. Like it's hard to think of the future, which is a human thing to do. And i go, oh, all these thoughts I'm having are affected by climate change. Even my dream of building a house one day, I go, oh, I better build a house that has a basement with lots of canned food.
5: (laughs) I mean, this is a big one. For me, this is the biggest of all the goals. There is no equality on a dead planet. You know, you always come back to that one. There's no business on a dead planet. There's no innovation to be had on a dead planet. And then you look at all the goals, you know, poverty, hunger, health, none of that, education, none of that, if we've literally created the conditions in which human life can no longer continue. But where I take my optimism from is we are now universally talking about it.
4: Oh, for sure. I guess with climate change, it just seems so big and there's so much information going on, but it's also hard to know where's my entry point into being part of the solution.
5: That is hard because it's not a decision. It's like a series of micro decisions all the time. And it also massively depends on where you live, you know, what stage of life you're at. I think all we can do, and it's come up in other episodes, is arm yourself to the teeth with information and then make mm. the decision that Make sense to you?
4: Okay, fair. Uh, I I hear you. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, as somebody who's been to the latest climate conference, I'm going to just like fire some questions at you that you know that are hard to ask in in intelligent circles because then you look like a dumb dumb. But let me look like a dumb dumb here.
5: <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'll give my best answers. I'm not the know all and end all, but um, I'll give it a go.
4: Ready? I'm ready. Question one. Just quick off the top of your head, are we screwed? <laughs>
5: I mean, close to, but I'm going to say not yet. We're on the literally last chance saloon of the last chance saloon street. But let's all urgently make sure that we aren't screwed.
4: Okay, should we stop eating beef?
5: I mean, the way we mass produce it and ship it around the world at the moment, 100%. If you get a chance to live in a really wonderful regenerative farming area where cows are humanely raised to feed, then maybe that's okay.
4: It's complicated, okay. Everything considered, are electric cars really better, yes or no?
5: I mean, that is also complicated. I think what we need to all think about is, do we need a car? That's that's the bigger one. Do we all need our own car or can we
4: share everybody else's? Okay. Um, COP26, was that a failure?
5: I mean, none of these are simple, I'm afraid. COP26 was fantastic in that it happened and that lots of voices were brought in that aren't normally in. So the indigenous, the young, we'll hear from them later. The problem with it is it's still very commitment-based and enough money was not promised to go to developing countries who are suffering the effects of climate change now. So nuanced and all to play for, I'd say.
4: Okay. Uh, Fine. Is our individual carbon footprint bullshit or not?
5: No, definitely not. Whether, like, you reducing, you know, how much you use your car and me reducing how much meat I eat is going to save the species up for debate but it gives people a framework by which they can um, change their consciousness about how we exist on the planet, right? Like it's better to think about what you're using up in terms of carbon than not. But alone, it is not going to turn this thing around because what we also need is really gigantic, urgent, systemic action, which is why I'm so glad that's the climate goal that we're talking about today, climate action. It's in the title. And we're going to talk about how people can take action on a bigger scale, whether that is to take part in a bigger movement. There's so many ways that we can take action to bring about the change that's needed.
4: Okay, so essentially there's all these questions, the answers to them are, it's complicated because it seems like such a huge goal. And then you think, oh, then what is the solution? It's like, no, there's no the solution. There is only being involved in solutions. I'm vegetarian, but even I know that it's not necessarily going to change the world just for everyone to be vegetarian.
5: Yeah, I mean, beef is a really good example to me of the uselessness of all or nothing thinking. Mm, And I think all or nothing thinking pushes people into a state of inaction. So there is like a really huge wholesale shift that needs to happen, but it doesn't have to be bad. In many ways, a carbon neutral world or a net positive world, as they say, and a nature positive world, are much better worlds. You know, then we're healthier, right? Then we can breathe clean air. Then we can swim in the rivers. So I'm I'm actually really optimistic. I think what you'll hear in our guests coming up is that level also of optimism. You know, they, they know that we can be somewhere better. We're going to hear from climate activists in the global south who are truly on the front line of the crisis. We're going to hear from a climate activist in the global north who feels... Up here, we are the main source of the crisis and therefore we have a responsibility to the people who are most affected. And then we end by hearing from, he'll not like me for this, but a climate veteran. <laughs> so it makes me sound like he's just very old. He's not. But he has been in this scene for quite a while and he is often in the room where it happens. So he, is, he has been in the negotiations. He has seen those agreements come together where the nitty gritty details of a climate agreement actually get hammered out. So first up, let's meet the people who are fighting for climate justice in the Global South.
2: I have done a lot of soul searching about what to say here today. I have asked myself over and over what words might move you. And then I realized that making my four minutes count does not rest solely on me. My truth will only land if you have the grace to fully listen. My story will only move you if you can open up your heart.
5: When the Kenyan climate activist Elizabeth Watuti took to the stage at COP26 last year, her passionate speech went viral.
2: Right now, as we sit comfortably here in this conference center in Glasgow, over two million of my fellow Kenyans are facing climate-related starvation. I have seen with my own eyes, three young children crying at the side of a dried up river after walking 12 miles with their mother to find water. Please open your hearts.
5: Elizabeth has been inspiring young people to become more environmentally conscious through her Green Generation initiative that she launched in 2016. Mitzi Jonal-Tan is a climate justice activist in the Philippines who co-founded Youth Advocates for Climate Action Philippines. She's also fighting for a greener future whilst finding ways to do this safely in a country where activism is actually equated with terrorism. So I spoke to these two inspiring women about what drives them on as activists. Welcome to the Global Goals podcast, which we are calling An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World. Today, the episode is all about climate action, and I could not be happier to be joined by two amazing climate activists in the form of Mitzi Janelle tan From the Philippines and Elizabeth Watuti, who is joining us from Kenya. Ladies, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me.
3: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
5: I'm so pleased to meet you. I've seen both of your work. Elizabeth, I saw your amazing speech at COP. I can't think of a better way to kick off our climate action special. So I guess I'm gonna start with you, Elizabeth. We're four months after COP26. I know you were both there. You went down a storm in the hall. You made the news. I think people were on their feet, some people were crying. It was amazing. I wonder how that feels. And what happens next? You know, when everything's and down and you've gone home again, what have you felt since? And do you think progress has actually been made?
2: It was not an easy thing to do, especially when you are speaking on behalf of so many other people who are facing the worst impacts of climate change and going there on that podium, hoping that the leaders will make the right decisions. It's about great decisions that are going to help us right now, because I come from a community and a country that is impacted by climate change right now and we're not waiting for the impacts to hit in the next years. So for an outcome that really supports the present needs of such a community and such a country and such a continent, then it has to be a kind of an outcome that I can come back to my community and say that I went to the COP and I asked the leaders to open their hearts and this is what they did. This is the kind of outcome that was at the COP. but. I think for me, with the COP26 outcome, I was not really impressed with the outcome because I did expect an outcome that would support the present needs of people who are facing the worst impacts of climate change at this moment. But then that was not the case. And having to come back to my community that is still facing a climate-forced drought, the real work to continue putting up pressure for the leaders to do what must be done has to keep going because we cannot just sit back and wait for the next COP. But again, opening your hearts is a practice. It's something that you have to keep reminding yourself every other time and make sure that every decision that you're making, everything that you're doing at the moment is centered around feeling the injustices, acknowledging the sufferings of people, and then choosing not to stop there, but move a step further and do what must be done. I really feel
5: that from you. I felt that appeal and I think you did open hearts in the room, but I also felt on the ground at COP this real tension between your communities, you know, the young activists and the pace of change that you want to happen, i.e. now, and the, the blah, blah, blah of COP, which is in this many years we will stop doing this. Mitzi, I'm going to ask you a similar question because you were there too. Have you been to a COP before? What was your sense? What did you come away thinking?
3: Honestly, it was not what I expected. It was so hyped up by the organizers and by the UK government that this would be the COP where things actually happen, where things change. And they were saying in the lead up to the conference that this would be the most inclusive COP and that we'd have young people at the forefront. But yes, maybe we had young people doing speeches, but were we listened to. If we were actually listened to, as Elizabeth said, we would have gotten actual concrete action. But again, the thing that the young people were calling for the most, the loss and damages, the climate reparations, the climate finance, that was all ignored. That was all pushed aside. That was all put into the next agenda for next year. As if we have the capacity to wait for another year. And it's just all a sense of betrayal, really, especially when they've made us go there to talk about our climate trauma and our fears and our sadness and said that we are their hope. They made us believe in that hope. And then suddenly at the end, oh, Loss and damages, climate finance. Oh, instead of instead of actual concrete mechanisms, let's have negotiations for it.
5: When I look at you two, who are comfortably twenty years younger than I am, I wish I'd started earlier because there's you know so much urgent work to be done. Did you guys get anything positive out of COP? Maybe from at least meeting your, the rest of your community, because presumably you've all been on Zoom for eighteen months. Was that a good energy? Is that something you think you can take forward?
3: I think that was my favorite and one of the best takeaways from the UN Climate Summit. That you could really see that juxtaposition of how global North leaders and politicians—they're not collaborating. They're not really talking to each other. They're not trying to put their hands together and going beyond their communities to solve the climate crisis. Yet on the streets. Outside of the conference, you're seeing young people dancing to different songs of different cultures and different languages and really just collaborating. We were building that world that we're fighting for after working together for so long online. We were finally able to stand side by side and chant our chants together and strike together and sing together and hug each other. And I think that's so crucial when creating global movements.
5: And I guess also it's what keeps you going between those big moments and also gets you up again after the disappointment. Elizabeth, I'm going to come back to you. You made that point about, I've got to go home and tell my community what happened or didn't happen. And how do you keep your energy up as an activist? Because I know it's really hard.
2: There's so much energy coming out and you still need to draw it back in to be able to re-energize and keep that momentum going. And at the COP. Also seeing the community outside, the civil society, the young people giving space to people from the Global South, to indigenous communities to lead the marches, it tells you that this community understands what is happening. It tells you that we're not alone in this fight. And I think for me, that's why I draw so much energy, just sitting here and knowing that I am not on my own really the reason why we have a anxiety and someone asked me recently that should we change the way we communicate about the climate crisis? Should we make this IPCC report a little bit more appealing so that you people don't get scared? And I was like, that's not why we are scared. We are not facing a anxiety because of the science. It's because we see and we hear that the problem is this huge, but nothing is being done. So it's about the response of how we are responding to this information. It's not about how we are communicating. Mitzi, I think I
5: just read that your country is one of the most dangerous in the world to be an activist. Can you give us a bit of context there? Tell us how does it feel on the ground? Does it feel frightening to be an activist in itself?
3: In the Philippines, being an environmental defender especially is so dangerous. We have been the most dangerous country in Asia for the past eight years. We're always in the top three or top five in the past 10 years, I think. And it's really just this added layer of anxiety to climate activists who are already experiencing climate anxiety because we're not just afraid of the banging of thunder on our doors and windows, but also the banging of police on our doors, the, the sirens of the wind and the sirens of police cars. These are things that can happen. And just recently, um, a friend, and environmental defender in the Philippines was killed by the Philippine military. And it's just, it, it hurts because you know that these people... We are only fighting for everyone's lives. We're not fighting for just us. Across the world, more and more environmental activists and defenders are being criminalized. And the deaths of environmental defenders are rising because it's these leaders and this system that wants to keep continuing this profit-oriented exploitation. And who is at the front line of stopping this, going against this? It is the environmental defenders. There is no excuse to not join. There is a quote in Filipina that says, kapag ka, pang pa. And if you translate that, that basically means once your eyes have been opened, it is a sin to close them. And I hold that so dearly in my heart because it's true. Once you know what's happening, there's no choice really but to act.
5: Oh, that's beautifully said. Not just the actual phrase, which I won't even try and repeat, but that sentiment, and I'm really glad you've gone there because my next question was going to be, Can you remember the point at which your eyes were opened? You know, was there a point that for you turned you into an activist?
3: For me, growing up, seeing the climate crisis, being afraid of drowning in my own bedroom, having to, you know, have candlelit dinners because there was no electricity because of the typhoons was something that, made me very open to the idea, but because climate education was next to none, talking about the ice caps, but not the experiences we were already experiencing, I didn't even put the two and two together. It wasn't until I was able to talk to an indigenous leader of our land, um, the Lumad indigenous group, and they were telling us about how they were being harassed and displaced and killed and militarized. It was all these horrible stories. Then he smiled, then he shrugged and chuckled and said, that's why we have no choice but to fight back. And it was so simple and it just burst my bubble of privilege where I was on the fence of whether I should be an activist or not. And I realised then there, I have to commit myself to activism. I have no excuse but to join. When there is oppression, when there is injustice, there will always be resistance. The question is, will you join it?
5: Elizabeth, can I ask you the same question? Was there a point in time that your eyes were opened and you realised you had to do this?
3: Yes, and...
2: I would say mine is slightly different because I had the privilege of growing up in a forested place and just that opportunity of spending time close to the beautiful forest and the clean streams as a child, but also at some point realizing that you have that love for nature, you're connected to nature, but also at some point witnessing that natural world that my friends and I knew as children changing before our eyes, the streams no longer flowing in the same fast speed. The water levels have gone down. The forests are no longer as bushy as they used to be. And, you know, things just are not as beautiful as they used to be before. And just getting to a point where you feel the pain of nature, you know, where you see people cutting down trees and you feel it hurts you as well. And being able to have that connection is what really made me want to understand what's going on. When I was studying, I also realized that there was a connection with climate change, a connection with how we treat nature and how that continues to affect you know, the climate and continues to really impact people in my communities. I always say that my driving force has still been that love for nature, that love for the people and that love of wanting to see people and nature thriving.
5: I love the way you said that, that journey from I was feeling nature's pain to doing something about nature. I'm really glad you brought nature in, because I think quite often nature and climate get separated. And of course, as you both know, you know, you will not get a carbon balanced world if if nature is not thriving. I want to ask you, and this is for our listeners who probably aren't activists. What is your day job like? Mitzi, give me a kind of rundown of your typical day.
3: This is a difficult question. Um, I am a full-time activist now. Before the pandemic, a lot of our work revolved around going to schools and talking about the climate crisis and raising awareness. We go to frontline communities like small fishers and um, small farmers and working communities and urban poor communities to learn about their experiences, to listen to their experiences and to learn from them how they're seeing the environment change, how they're seeing the impact on them. But also a lot of my work is also just Reading through climate articles and reading through the most boring graphs. I I graduated math from university and I thought after you know math and I became an activist. I was like, oh, I never have to look at another graph or Excel sheet again. I will be an activist. i be, be the street, It's gonna you be know, amazing. Doing all this fun work. And, <laughs> yay, yeah, yeah. It's, it's gonna be so fun. And then suddenly I'm back here reading the climate reports, reading the graphs, looking at Excel sheets, looking at numbers. It is very. I I, I hate almost how. Social media and mainstream media either portray climate activism as dangerous and terrorists or as this red carpet dream almost of of fame and media and protesting and just that without showing the mundane parts where it is boring, it is difficult, it is sad also. And if you don't think that it's normal that that happens to you, maybe when you're starting out, you'll be like, why am I not as happy as that person? Why am I doing boring stuff? Not knowing that it is so much part of activism. But my favorite part of climate activism really is being able to talk to people. It comes from a place of love, of this revolutionary love, not the fluffy, you know, friendship will save the world kind of thing, but more of... When you love someone, you will hold them accountable more and help them grow more. And when you love someone, you'll let them hold you accountable. You'll hold each other accountable and you'll hold each other in grief. That's how you grow the movement. Yeah, and I love the fact that we're
5: talking about love because I think this is where we need to move to. Back to Elizabeth's open your hearts up. You know, if this is all done from the head and from maths, then we're not going to get anywhere. We need to be safe with each other, right? We need to be real. We need to be safe. We need to take risks, but we need to be loving. So I'm very aware that I'm sitting here in the global north, and we are very much less if directly affected right now than many, many other parts of the world, not least the parts you sit in. So what I would love to hear you say, for the people who are listening to this podcast who are maybe in the same position, what is it that we can do from this enormously privileged position of not yet being affected? What can we do to support your work on the ground and with your activist community?
3: Honestly, join the movement there. Um, because it is your countries, the Global North countries, that are causing the climate crisis. So we need people from these countries to pressure your leaders because, you know, as much as we'd love to think that the US president would listen to us here all the way in the Philippines, we know they won't, not really. they listen to you, the people in the US. they listen to the people who are voters there. And so we need to mobilize people there for the campaigns that are happening in our country.
5: You see, I think what Mitzi said there is so interesting, profound, and actually speaks to so many climate activists. We in the Global North have such a responsibility to take because we caused this. You know, we ran riot with the world's resources. We burned all the fossil fuels necessary to give ourselves dominance in the world and just fantastic lives for a while. And it's coming back at us, but it's not coming back at us yet. It's absolutely hitting the global south now. So I'm really interested to ask you, Loiso, sat in South Africa, what is your feeling on that? Do you feel hard done by? Do you feel angry? Like, And how do we move forward?
4: Sure. We can point and say that's where the problem started. But at the end of the day, we're all the climate change is going to hit all of us. So we can't just keep separating our, our responsibilities on the matter. The fact is that climate change is going to be everywhere in different ways. So unless I just start getting involved in being a positive change where I'm at, you know, confronting my own government, you know, why, why aren't we, you know, future proofing ourselves? Why aren't we switching our energy? It doesn't matter then what the North feels guilty or not. Yes, yes. We need to look at our
5: own backyards and work out what we can do here, you know, what we can do in our lives and our families and our jobs. And then it's an and, right? Not a but, but an and. We will also need to find the courage to step up and take on the big polluting fossil fuel companies. You know, every, every scientist has now made it crystal clear. If we're going to survive this, we just need to move away from oil and gas, away.
4: Exactly. And our next guest is actually someone who really feels strongly about that, Her name is uh, Michaela Loach, and as someone living in the UK, she felt a, a strong responsibility to act and take on big oil. She was one of three claimants who took the government to court over subsidies and tax breaks to the fossil fuel industry. And she also joined a huge campaign called Stop Cambo, whose goal was to stop the development of a new oil field in the North Sea. And against all odds, they succeeded. This is the little conversation I had with her, which was really, really eye-opening. So I was born in Jamaica,
0: but raised in the UK. And my mum would make me watch all these documentaries about Nanny the Maroons and freedom fighters in Jamaica. And I was very much taught that liberation is something that is taken from below, from the ground up. It's not given to you from on high and that it's something we need to fight for. But it took me a while to see myself in the climate movement because I saw that for my community, there were more pressing issues. I think for a lot of people who are racialized as black or as, as non-white, um, we feel like there's a lot of more pressing issues that we have to face rather than climate change. Climate change seems like this thing for people who have huge amounts of privilege and don't have to worry about things today. And it was actually realising the connection between the climate crisis and the migrant justice work and the racial justice work that I was doing that got me into um, this fight because I realised that the climate crisis is a great multiplier. It makes all other injustices worse. It means that my family in Jamaica are so much more vulnerable to climate threats, even though they've contributed so little to creating this crisis. And so what we need to do is if we want a just and liberated future for all of us is we need to actually tackle the climate crisis as well and go to the roots of this crisis as um, the same things that cause migrant injustice, the same things that cause racial injustice, white supremacy, capitalism, the dissociation of, of seeing each other as fully human. Those have also caused this climate crisis and led us to where we are now. Um, and that's a shortened version of how, <laughs> even though it's been really long, of how... <laughs> (laughs) got into this space
4: Uh, and at at this point now you're kind of like you're kind of a big deal so how (laughs) so how now does that how how is it working with that kind of pressure on you with with eyes on you as much as all of us
0: individually have huge amounts of power one of us alone can't solve everything and shouldn't solve everything, actually. One person shouldn't, and that pressure is is too much on, on any of us. I realised that my role, I didn't expect it to be this role, but is more public-facing. It is doing like that public-speaking stuff, but that's just one role. And, and anyone who's listening, I don't want you to think that, oh, being an activist is just doing public-facing stuff or speaking or going to rallies or taking governments to court. It's so many different things, and there is definitely a role out there for everyone, and we should just do things that both we're good at that we care about, but also
4: that bring us joy. And that's how we'll keep going and not be burnt out. How does one overcome that eco-anxiety and turn it into action?
0: That's a great question because I think that the best antidote for eco-anxiety is is climate action because I think a lot of that anxiety comes from this feeling that there's nothing that we can do. I think that what we need to start doing is not asking, is it too late to do anything about climate, but asking, how can I help? Because is it too late is the wrong question. Is it too late for who? Because there are so many communities right now who are being harmed and exploited and oppressed. And and are we saying that we're just gonna abandon those communities because we feel kind of stressed about it? I don't think that's the right response at all. I think that we should just think, okay, what can we actually do? And it, for some people it will be a lot and others it
4: might be a little. What's interesting for me is like picking up words like exciting and joy, because in the media, by the time we see your guys' faces or hear people speaking in the activist field, You know, it's shouting time, it's pointing fingers, you know, you're calling people out. But is the idea of fun there too, the joy for those who want to get involved?
0: For sure. I've actually had the most joyful, fun times of my life with my activist pals. And before you little listeners start thinking, what a loser, Um, (laughs) she has no fun in her life, it's because I've actually had fun because it can actually be really fun. It can be so joyful to be surrounded by people who just, have the biggest hearts of anyone that you know who care so deeply and it's not all shouting and like gloom and anger a lot of it is us just kind of also just being a bit silly doing this work with Stock Cambo one of the actions we did we had an online open action where people could come along to a zoom call and we just made memes together
4: not all of it has to be super serious Well, okay cool so I'm now drawn to a movement but then I see the front people, I see them getting arrested. What if I don't want that? What if I just don't want to, like, MLK get shot? What can you give us some examples of, in a movement, the kind of stuff that I could do if I just want to help, but I'm just not your guy when it comes to getting shot at with rubber bullets?
0: That is totally fair. The stuff that you see in the media or the visual stuff, that's not the whole movement. Like, for that protest to have even happened, for example there's so much kind of admin that needs to happen before then of how can we get people to come along or like a group of us made a series of social media reels to raise awareness and to make those reels happen even we have people who did research behind the scenes just to to make sure that we were saying the right stuff there're people who may who edited the videos there's so much stuff behind the scenes you don't need to be front and center
4: so you can be a keyboard warrior and it actually can be a thing that you know that is effective
0: for sure and i think the pandemic really showed us that so much Activism can happen from home, like it had to over the pandemic. Also, a lot of those narratives can also be really ableist because some not everyone can go on the street or even like classes, not everyone can take a day off work to go to a protest. There need to be so many different entry points into activism.
4: I can't explain to you how much of a relief it was talking to Michaela about being an activist because the guilt that one can be wrought in for not doing anything. It's a guilt that's now just accompanying your fear of being an activist. And it was so great for her to go, it's like Batman, he needs somebody to do his laundry. And that <laughs> matters just as much. You know, you can't be out there in the same leather suit you fought in last night. <laughs> somebody needs to clean that. And that person's just as yeah. important. And I think that was an important point because we want to we join the movement, but we don't all want to be MLK.
5: Totally. I think the word activist has got sort of layers of association that can be really off-putting, you know, because you would think, oh, I'm not that sort, mm. you know, I'm not that brave. Or, but, but you might know how to, you know, sign, get a contract signed or you might know how to, you know, open a bank account. Yeah. All these things that, especially young activists, I remember when Greta's movement, Fridays for Future, were beginning to protest in London, they needed people who could um, help them build little stages so they could stand... Because they're little. <laughs> so they needed, like, carpenters to build stages. And that's, that could be joining a
4: movement. Yeah. So I think she's
5: absolutely right. I think it's a team effort. And one thing, actually, we learned from the previous girls was how good it feels when it gets together as well.
4: It, it really is one of the ultimate human experiences to do something good with others. And I got her to break it down for me how to actually become an activist. Because I, I really wanted to get that out from her. It's like, okay if I'm the kind of person who needs a step-by-step guide, what is it? And you know what? She obliged. Step one, identify the cause.
0: Find an issue you care about. That's the first thing. Work out what is it that makes your like heart shatter. Step two, team up. Get a bunch of people who really are passionate about this issue. Get them in one space. Have a big brainstorming idea, like how can we make this work? Get people who do loads of different things, not just one type of person, not just one type of skill. You want to do a multiplicity of tactics.
4: Step three, find funding.
0: There is actually a lot of money out there that people want to give to projects. And so reach out to institutions like the Climate Vulnerable Forum, Google for funding opportunities. Fundraising is another way that you can get around it, is work out how much you think you're going to need and then, and then work out from there. Or you can just reach out to, if you happen to know anyone who's got a lot of money, maybe be like, hello, could I have a bit of money please?
4: <laughs> Step four, find courage.
0: I think look into the past, look into how people have made change before and you'll find courage there because you cannot help to be inspired by people who have done this work before. For me, inspirations in my life are Asasa Shakur and Angela Davis and Audre Lorde, the people whose work has motivated me so much and reminded me that we all have courage in there somewhere. We just need to find it within ourselves.
4: Step five, find a lawyer.
0: It definitely depends on what you're doing, but le- like especially if you're doing direct action or if you're doing any protests, getting legal advice is so important. I think this is, doesn't happen enough. You need to know your legal rights. There are so many groups that do this for free. All over the world, wherever you are, you can literally just search protest legal advice, your area.
4: Step six, how to win.
0: In Stock Cambo, I remember sitting down and getting a, so many messages from my friends and thinking, what's happened? And Shell had actually dropped out of the field. That is something that we hadn't even planned for. We thought that wasn't possible because Shell is a massive oil company. And so the fact that they had stepped down showed that we had made it uneconomic for them to support this project because of how much pressure was being put on them and the delays and that only happened because tons of people came around they use social media we occupied buildings we protested we used the media we worked with MPs we worked with as many people as possible to make this happen
4: step 7 celebrate
0: yes i think that celebrating the wins whether they're big or small is is a really good way to keep up that momentum and keep us going
4: Step eight, start back at step one.
0: I don't think that there's, there's not like an end goal for liberation, at least not in my lifetime. And so this fight is one that is for the rest of my life um, and should be for the rest of all lives.
4: Okay, so what have we learned so far? We've had a real call to action from young climate activists around the world we learned how we can run a successful campaign we've also learned you can even take on big oil companies Actually, i didn't even think that was possible or you know if you prefer you can also be a keyboard warrior that's also perfectly fine but what we haven't heard yet is about real action from world leaders like what happens at these climate summits what's happening in these conference rooms can you like help help me help us help the people What happens behind the suits and the statements?
5: (laughs) I mean, they are really weird places. It's true, but um, Tom Rivet karnak is joining us. He does know all about it. Uh, He was one of the key movers in the Paris Climate Accord. He was a senior advisor at the time to Christiana Figueres, and she was leading the UNFCCC, who run the whole process. So, I started by asking him about the Paris Agreement. What actually was it, and how did he see that come about? And then what has happened since?
1: So to just give you the very quick story of Paris, it was very difficult for a long time to agree um, a global deal on climate. And there were many reasons for that. But one was to do with fairness. Climate change is fundamentally unfair. It's unfair economically, geographically, generationally. Those who have done the least to cause it experience the worst impacts. And as a result of that, what we found in the negotiations was that developing countries would say to developed countries, you caused this problem. And what's more, you said you'd sort it out in 1992 when we signed the Rio Convention. So go away and do something meaningful and actually make progress, then come back and we'll talk about a partnership to work together. And they were right, intellectually absolutely right. But developed countries would then say to developing countries, the world has changed now. The majority of the emissions are now coming from places like India and China and Brazil. Um, We can't solve this on our own. This has to be an everyone together thing. The breakthrough in Paris was that it was the first time that all countries accepted shared responsibility for actually reducing emissions and for a collective action that would solve the problem. It said, we all have to get to the same point by 2050, because if we fail, then we all fail together. That's net zero emissions by the middle of the century. But in order to get there, we will have a series of five yearly goals between now and then that will be nationally determined and will be in the national interest. So, now, the good thing about that was it led to a breakthrough. It was much easier to agree, although it wasn't easy. Everyone came together in the end, agreed the long-term goal, agreed many of the rules, and provided national commitments. But the challenge is, how do we know that it's enough? We have to be able to get the trajectory that we start out on to meet the end point. And when we came out of Paris, we said we wanted to limit climate change to well under 2 degrees with best efforts to 1.5. But the trajectory we were on, if you went forward from the first round of commitments, it was taking us to nearly four degrees. So there was this massive gap of what we said we were going to do and the path we were on. And the work of the last few years has been to try to close that. Is it useful for me to talk a bit about what happened in Glasgow?
5: I think really useful, because that will be the one that we most people listening will remember. Like, well, didn't we just have a, a, a COP?
1: Right. So, so that story continues in Glasgow, right? Because the thing about Glasgow was it was the first time that that mechanism was tested we've kind of made that up. and in, in, you know, The world made it up in Paris. And the weakness, and John Kerry said this when we were in Paris, the weakness was, is this actually going to work? Will countries come back to the table and make more commitments that get us back on track? The net effect out of Glasgow was that we did close that gap significantly from nearly four degrees down to something like two degrees or a little bit over two. So you can look at that and say, That was a major success. The first time the world came back together actually closed that gap significantly. But the other thing that happened in Glasgow is there was a complete collapse of trust around whether we're actually going to do what we say we're going to do. Because those little words that exist in the Glasgow pact, if fully implemented, if fully implemented is the difference between a whole bunch of ideas about what might be nice and actually doing something that's meaningful for the future of the planet. And and this is the brilliant role that young activists and many other activists have played, is they've looked back at history and said, we're not sure that we can trust this. You know, one example is the New York Declaration on Forest that was signed in 2014 that committed to major reduction of, forests, uh, of, of forest destruction, almost completely missed. Like nothing that they said was going to be achieved was actually subsequently implemented. So when the world came back together in Glasgow with a very similar seeming commitment, people looked at that and said, you know what, you lied before and we think you're lying now, so actually this isn't good enough. So we had this weird thing happen in Glasgow where the commitments actually did get more impressive, but the confidence in them collapsed.
5: You're not suggesting that politicians just say things for good headlines, are you, Tom? (laughs) I mean, you wouldn't be so cynical. It's such a sad tale. Young people are so, you know, black and white, aren't they? Like, whoa, you made that up last time. You know, it's very, they are the hardest end, aren't they, to convince that this is actually going to happen because they just call it out.
1: If you look at the analysis of this, they're absolutely right. And that will oh, that rift will only be healed by the demonstration of meaningful action.
5: The five-year thing is interesting. You could argue the state that we're in at the moment, the urgency of it all, is five years even meaningful. Is there any way in which these measures and these sort of reports are going to be sped up so that rather than work out in five years' time that they were lying, actually we find out that on year, two years, three years' mark that we're widely away from hitting the mark?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. There's two parts to it. One is, you're absolutely right, we need to have more rapid feedback of how things are going. Are we back on track? And we have that pretty good now in terms of, the emissions of the global economy, and next year, 2023, will be the global stocktake of how we're actually doing coming out of Paris. But the other piece is um, every five years is the cycle at which countries come back to make new targets. And there's a very good argument to say that's too long because what if we're off track? And actually that has been picked up by the UN. So there's some language in the Glasgow Pact that says that because we didn't fully close the trajectory to 1.5 degrees. Countries are asked to come back to the table in 12 months time in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt with new commitments to try to close that gap. Now, we were all very happy that that was put in there. Bear in mind, this is still in the realm of this is what I say I'm going to do rather than demonstrated action. So it comes with some uncertainty. But of course, since then, the world has changed. Russian aggression in Ukraine, a lot of attention elsewhere. The narrative on the decarbonized economy bifurcating between those who are saying this is now more urgent and those who are saying drill baby drill, which is sort of happening in many countries. So I'm hoping that we'll still see progress on countries closing that gap. But my fear is that what we'll now see is just that language is copy paste into every COP decision from now on until we get there.
5: And maybe like right, right this year could be a kind of at worst this could be a one hopes a one-off because of the Ukrainian-Russian situation. I was going to ask you about that. It seems like it could have been such an opportunity for us all to realise how dependent we were on this not only crazy sort of dependency on one or two countries, but also, you know, reassess our relationship with the stuff in the first place. But as you say, the drill baby drill tendency at the moment seems to be winning out. I mean, and it's hard, it's impossible to predict. But do you have any kind of words of optimism that will get us out of this current situation in a better space than we were when we went in?
1: Well, so I mean, I'll come to the optimism in a minute. Cause I think there is some of that, but also I just so I'm, I'm um, I was talking to some friends in the US the other day and they were saying that when Russia invaded Ukraine and the energy price spike started to materialize, the US population was roughly divided between blaming President Biden, Putin, and the oil and gas companies for price gouging. Now, it is very clear that everybody almost not everybody, but the vast majority blame the president. And in those intervening weeks, the oil and gas sector has outspent everybody else 10 to 1 in controlling the narrative. So that, to me, is a wake-up call that we're not being smart at grabbing these moments and still losing in the narrative to these entities who are trying to claim that actually this means we should open up more domestic drilling and other things. But but, but, <laughs> trying to bring it back to the optimism. Bring it back to the optimism, uh, yeah, yeah. Tom. Come on. <laughs> Well, look, I mean, we have always had a compelling environmental reason for doing something on climate. We now have a compelling economic reason as well, because the solutions are cost effective right now. You know, that wasn't true in Paris, but it is now. But now we also have the most overwhelming political argument as well, which is that we are totally reliant on somebody that we've always known is a bully and is sort of controlling the world and doing horrible things to other people. Christiana likes to use the analogy that, you know, we are a a cancer patient who has been diagnosed with an almost terminal disease and we're continuing to smoke. And we've now discovered that the person who provides our cigarettes is a terrible bully and using the money that we spend to buy those cigarettes, to do terrible things to other people. What do we do as a result of that? Do we say we're now going to plant tobacco in our backyard in order to like have a little homegrown rolling business so we can continue smoking that may deprive the bully of money, but we're still dying of cancer this is the moment where we need to say, oh my God, maybe the universe is sending us a message and we just need to stop smoking. Part of the problem is we're so used to terrifying things like this IPCC report that just came out that they just kind of wash over us now. Whereas if we were able to like take a pause and realise how urgent and how important it is, I do think that would help us.
5: I'm glad you bring up the IPCC because that's what I was going to ask you next. It talks to the role of science now and how inextricably linked it is in the narrative. So maybe just help us understand that report in context and also why this third one's quite interesting.
1: So this report, um, you know, is obviously the third and final instalment from the IPCC that does look at, you know, mitigation pathways in terms of how we can reduce emissions. And, you know, it makes devastatingly urgent points. I mean, if we want to hit 1.5, we have to peak emissions in 2025. You know, that's a couple of years from now. Oh, it's wow. Remarkable. Yeah. And don't forget that this is a negotiated outcome. So the scientists put together what they were going to say, and then it was negotiated and arguably softened or watered down. So what we're really reading, alarming as it is, is the negotiated outcome. Um, now, the report is brilliant and sets out the pathways sector by sector in terms of what needs to be done. It's incredible in its creativity. I'd really encourage your listeners. Could anyone to, just
5: read it? I was going to say, people yeah, can just, just go look it. at it, can't they? Yeah. It's online.
1: Yeah. It's really worth it. It's very readable, actually, which people wouldn't necessarily have assumed. Carbon removal is a major part of this. And and, and there's a couple of things to say there. One is I think there's now no scenario where we keep to 1.5 where we don't have serious carbon removal from the atmosphere. But you've got to divide carbon removal into two camps. One is natural ecosystems. So, you know, regrowing forests, placing carbon in soils, stimulating um, or, you know, working with oceans so that oceans are able to absorb more carbon without acidifying. So, not dissolving, but absorbing carbon. Those restorations of the beauty of the planet, to me, are the ultimate win-win. Those things, I I personally feel, have almost universal support. The other piece is mechanical systems for removing carbon from the atmosphere, so direct air capture and other things like that. The truth is that we should be looking at that because we might well need it. It looks like we're going to need it. And if it feels like people might deploy that, then we should get the science and the engineering right so that we don't end up with problems down the road where people do things that are untested. But the dangerous thing about that narrative is that some people may hear it. And I was asked this on The World at One and asked exactly this question, does that mean we don't have to do anything? You know, Which actually is complete misunderstanding of what's in the report. That might be able to help us in these most crucial years, but it cannot replace. The very deep emissions cuts, emissions cuts that we need to engage in right now.
5: Yeah, Well, thank you for um, making that super clear. Last question for me. You are generally quite jolly. You sound quite jolly. Your podcast, which I hugely recommend, Outrage and Optimism, is obviously one of the most credible and respected, but also fun to listen to. I would say about this whole space. How do you stay? optimistic and what's your recommendation to people listening who no doubt are suffering some degree of climate concern through to climate anxiety you know what's your advice to people for people to take action to alleviate some of that And, and starting with yourself like what do you do to stay sane
1: so the the first thing to say is that you can't look away it it creeps into all of our mental processes our fears about the future and that obviously is more intense in younger people But then there's another piece of it as well, which is how do we choose to respond at this critical moment? And humanity has never lived quite through anything like this before, but it's lived through very dark times. And I think if you look back at those moments, then what was required from people was a courage to refuse to believe that solutions were beyond our ability. And when that courage was identified, and you can think of these moments in history, right? You know, I have a dream, fight them on the beaches. Suffragettes, courage calls to courage everywhere, Gandhi's salt marches to the beach. You know, these were dark moments. And those possibilities that, despite the challenge and despite the risk and despite the likelihood that we could fail in this, failure is not guaranteed and real success is possible. And that's worth fighting for. And we're the ones who are here now who could do this. It sounds like a sort of obvious point, but. No one else is coming along to do this for us. So I find that, I don't know if I find it hopeful, but I find it real and satisfying, and I find it energizing. And I find that what that does is it gives me a basis on which I can continue. And then once you can continue, you start taking action in your life. You work out how your career can be meaningful. And that, to me, is the beginning of what can then lead to an outcome. And this is our story of the Paris Agreement, right? Our sense, mine and Christiana's, is that it was that shift from apathy and it's all too difficult and too complicated to actually who are we to stand by while this is possible and we're going to dig in and have determination. And as that attitude spread, we would regard that as the genesis of the outcome. The optimism and the determination came first and that led to the outcome. And so I have dark days and I've, I feel very sad about my children's future and about the loss of biodiversity in particular. But then I sort of say, well, you know, it's not done yet. And we're still here. And while we're still here, we're still working with determination and courage. There is hope that we can come through and do this.
4: Well, he wraps us up so perfectly. What we've been learning throughout this whole series the idea to start with hope. Like, start with the idea that it's possible. It seems so dumb if I were to just randomly tell you that, but then, you know, the idea of, well, we're still here and we can still make a change. And we just have to believe that we can and, and, you know, have that hope to start with. Such an empowering message.
5: I know. I love hearing him talk because um the way he said, who are we to stand around while this is, and you expect him to say happening, but who are we to stand around while this is possible just made me Mm. like go yes I you know I Mm. want to do that it's possible now and I think that feeling of it's it can be done is so what we need in the climate action and I also really am glad that he has closed the series for us because what he said about climate is really you could say about all the goals right they're all struggling because the world is getting tough right now but we are here and if we believe we can make the change then we can so let's um Let's wrap up on that thought because that's a good place to end. Should we do one more recap to see what we've learned?
4: Oh yeah, let's go in. Let's go into it. Okay,
5: I'll count you in. Let's go. 30 seconds on the clock. How
4: are we taking climate action? Three, two, one, go. Join a movement. You don't have to start your own. Just connect with one person at a conference or a meet or something. That
5: will make a difference. Start small and, really important, start local. There's loads of stuff going on right around your hood that could make a real difference.
4: Yeah, and don't put your head in the sand, man. Get the information you need so you can make the difference.
5: Make a difference, find out about young activists and fund them.
4: And act as if it can be done from the get-go. Hope is the only way forward.
5: Uh, Love nature, like Elizabeth said, all of it. And then plant trees, lots of them. Oh, that is not okay. 30 seconds is not enough to achieve everything we need to achieve in climate action. But as with all the goals we've covered in this series, there's so much more you can do. Go to globalgoals.org and you can find out so many different ways to get involved.
4: And that's us. That's us for now. We're going to go on a little little bit of a break uh, we need, but we will be back. So please subscribe and don't miss out. We are at The Global Goals on Instagram and Twitter. And it's been hella fun hosting this with you, Gail, all pixelated and all on our screens.
5: So fun. I think we're going to meet soon. I predict a meeting um, as we seal the deal for the inevitably stratospherically successful second series. But for now... To you, goodbye. Thank you. And to all our guests, thank you so much. It has been the most fun.
4: It really has. I'll see you next time. It's me, Loisa Madinga, signing out.
5: Oh, it has been me, Gail Galli Look forward to seeing you again. Bye-bye.
4: An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World is a Radio Wolfgang production made in collaboration with Project Everyone. The producers were Yolaine Goffin and Holly Fisher. The executive producer was Ellie DiMartino. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave a review. It helps other people find us. And the more people find us, the more people are saving the world. This podcast is supported by Google.org, bringing the best of Google to help solve some of humanity's biggest challenges. Find out more at Google.org.